and welcome to Inside Infrastructure, an inside look at the decisions and decision makers behind Australian infrastructure. I'm Janice Lee, partner at PwC Australia. In this episode, Adrian and I chatted with the Victorian Minister for Transport Infrastructure and the Suburban Rail Loop, Jacinta Allen, about her experience as a young woman entering state parliament and her career as Victoria's longest serving Labor Minister the major COVID-related challenges involved in Victoria's Big Build program, and the story behind one of the nation's biggest and most complex rail projects, the Suburban Rail Loop. It was a great chat, so here it is. Hello, everyone. Today we have the great pleasure of hosting Jacinta Allen on our podcast. Um, good, Good afternoon, Jacinta. Great to be with you, Janice. So we might start with a question you know, about you as a person, your career trajectory, how you landed in state politics in Victoria. Um, You descend from a prominent Bendigo political family. Is it correct that your grandfather was president of the Bendigo Trades Hall Council? That that is correct. Were you always fated to enter politics? Was there ever a plan B on the horizon Well, um, yeah, plan B was actually to travel to London to visit and meet my friends. I got elected in 1999. Um, Part for those of your listeners with longer memories will remember that was the election that Jeff Kennett was never thought to lose. And I was one of a number of regional Victorian seats, people running for the Labor Party in regional Victorian seats that had big swings against the, the Kennett government towards uh, Steve Brax and got elected as part of that, um, that 1999 election. And so my, um, yes, you're right, I, I, you know, politics is very much part of the family and the upbringing, more, more kind of Labor union type politics. Um, but uh, when I was pre-selected um, for the seat of nine, uh, for Benigo S in, in uh, early two, 1998, it was not seen as um, one that was particularly winnable. In fact, mm-hmm. Labor was not particularly seen as being a particular winnable outfit at the time. And so it was quite unexpected. And my very good dear friends um, headed off to, to London, um, were heading off to London, and I said, I'll see you there on the other side of this election. We'll get this out of the way and um, we'll come and uh, come and travel. But it wasn't to be. I did eventually get to London some years later, but uh, it wasn't to be. But the, the circumstances of my upbringing were, you know, yes, my grandfather was um, president of Benigo Trades Hall, uh, a, a member and indeed a life member of the um, Railways Union. My father is a um, in the electrical trades union and worked with um, a lot of mostly men who who had suffered um, difficult um, workplace injuries, like the electrical industry mm. is obviously a very um, dangerous industry. And so those um, their experiences and circumstances very much shaped my political um, allegiance. Um, and, and, yes, there was a lot of discussion at home particularly around election time, but also in between times about what the the politics of the day and what was going on. When you were elected, you were the youngest MP to be elected to to state parliament and um, you are the youngest woman to be elected to the the ministry as well. Um, What's that like? So coming in, you sort of indicated it's a bit of a shock election win. You know, you you come in as a young woman, Describe that transition for us. Oh, look, it was, it was, it was. I guess yes, I was very young. I like to think we're still very young. I'm sure all of us do inside, but 
I was very young because, you know, being um, now 22 years ago, um, it, it was, it was I, I guess, the kind of the idea about being the youngest um, uh, was kind of overwhelmed by um, what I mentioned before about the unexpected nature of the election victory and the excitement and the um, there was a real community groundswell of support for what we were doing for the incoming Labor government, particularly in regional Victoria, where, frankly, that's where, you know, the election was won and lost um, in 1999. And so some of that immediate um, excitement about being a new MP, forming really great friendships with um, other MPs in that same year that uh, I came into Parliament, but it was as time moved on, I suppose, and, yes, yeah, standing up to make your first speech in Parliament looking around and realising, hey, I'm clearly a bit different to the rest of the people sitting in this chamber. It did start to really, I guess, come home that I um, was obviously a lot younger and also came to Parliament with a very different perspective. And, and that's why and if I look back at my inaugural speech at the time, you know, I did make comment that Parliament's best represent are best representing the communities they serve when they look like the communities they serve. And whether it's younger people, older people, different um, cultural backgrounds, obviously there's a lot of discussion about women and the role of women till this day. It's, mm. I think that 22 years later we're still having an argument and a discussion about the need for equal representation of women in parliament. But we've got to keep striving to make sure that People who sit in the parliamentary chamber reflect the diversity of our community and it's incumbent upon political parties to make sure their processes allow people with those different experiences to come through the systems because the reality is here in, a, in Australia, most people come to parliament via the party system and so it is up to the parties to make sure that we through our processes are uh, letting um, and supporting people of different experiences and Certainly that was true for me um, 20 plus years ago. Um, the Labor Party, the association I um, had and continue to have with um, Emily's List was mm -hmm. a big factor in, in supporting, helping me get elected, but also dramatically increasing the number of women on the Labor side coming into Parliament in the late 90s into the early 2000s. Can, can I just ask mm -hmm. about um, the age part? Because when... When I was 25 years old, I knew bugger all. I'm not, I'm, I'm not entirely convinced at 38 I know a great deal. But, like, like see, I, I'd have just been like a ruined headlights at, at 25 years old, all of a sudden finding myself in mm. Parliament with the power to contribute to making laws and all mm. sorts of other important things. Were you like a ruined headlights? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, it was, it, as I said, I think it was because it was all new and there was a large number of us. So we were going through that experience together so we could share the, oh, my goodness, what, a, you know, what do we do about this? You know, what, what is an adjournment debate? You know, what do we do with this? Like, so, and so there was a lot of collegiality at the, at the time. But I guess it also, you know, I look back now and think, my goodness, what on earth um, was my motivation for putting my hand up for pre-selection. And part of it was um, was it wasn't seen as a winnable seat. So it was more for me, um, I could see it as I knew that I wanted to be involved in politics. I knew that I wanted, I saw Parliament as a really dynamic workplace. 
and I'd um, I, I had participated in the um, internship scheme that's run through the AN, the Australian National University, um, a few years earlier, and so I knew I, I loved Parliament. I, I found it a really interesting workplace, and my career aspiration, because at the time I was an electorate officer, my career aspiration was to one day maybe work for a minister, be a ministerial advisor, maybe even a chief of staff. And I saw that, you know, being a candidate, getting um, involved in um, more in the politics was a way of getting that experience. But also at the same time, running parallel with that was a really strong commitment to the community that I was born and at the time born and bred and continue to live in. And there was an opportunity to, I guess, give a bit of a voice to some of the issues here in Bendigo that I felt, um, you know, needed to be to be run on, needed to be ventilated. Uh, and that was also the big motivating factor for me running was that there was an opportunity to stand up for a whole bunch of issues in my community, a community that I'm really, really proud of and that I felt was was you know was getting a bit of a, a raw deal under the under the previous um, Liberal National Government. So those things came together and were a real, I guess, motivation for me to give it a, a red hot go. And here we are, twenty two years later. <laughs> it's a, great, uh, a great experience. You mentioned the party system um, mm. and and the income, how it's incumbent on the party system to generate, but just just to strive for better representation. And um, I, in a general sense, if I look at the Western world over the last decade, decade or so, there's, an argument could be put that the party system isn't necessarily producing the most representative candidates. Like I think, I think across the countries I'm most familiar with, so the US, you had an election, um, Biden v. Trump. The UK, you had... Um, Boris Johnson against um, Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn. Um, here we've had Bill Shorten against um, Scott Morrison. Just you know, from a, a, a leadership perspective, there's a common theme there. Adrian. Yeah, there is, isn't there? <laughs> and it already feels like ancient history, isn't it? Funny. Yeah. Do you think the party system actually, like, are we seeing a distortion of the party system? Is it working to produce like the very best and the mm. most representative, or? or is it getting easier for women as well? Yeah, well, I think, look, at, at risk of this podcast turning into a um, a uh, conversation of um, political science, yeah. I, I think that's an important question to ask because ultimately, um, as I mentioned before, um, the, the fact is in Australia the party system is very strong and so ultimately people who are getting pre-selected, elected, are ending up in positions like mine where you've got the opportunity to really shape um, in, in my case here in Victoria, to be involved in some really tremendously exciting city and state shaping transport projects that are complex and challenging and come with, a, you know, uh, quite, a, quite a bit of uh, money behind it as well. And so you're right. It's right to, to, to question are the processes, um, you know, right for our times. And I would argue, and I guess people listening would say, well, of course, I would be a bit of a defender of the party system because I'm part of it. But it does give you structure. There are um, within, and I can only speak for the Labor Party and my own experiences, that a lot of careful thought does go into training for prospective candidates. Training, you talked about like a, like a ruin the headlights, you know, media training, training about parliament, um, in the more modern era now, social media training and how to deal with, with uh, the slings and arrows that comes via social media. So that's, that 
for that way it does it does provide structure it does have a broader talent pool that then you can have a process that can ideally select um, good people to go through now we don't always get it right <laughs> no no organization does but I would argue that the structures that it provides does give a lot of support to MPs to go on and uh, have hopefully really strong parliamentary careers. But most importantly, and this is, I think, often what's lost sight of, the, your first and foremost job as a Member of Parliament is to represent your community. doesn't matter whether you're in a marginal seat, a safe, late, safe seat, whatever, your first job is to represent your community and give them the voice that they need and deserve on the issue of the day or um, things that are important to them back into that, that parliamentary system. Um, can I just that juxtaposition between representing your community versus a ministerial role and, and, and how the party trains you to be a parliamentarian, a politician, but being a minister is quite, quite different, I imagine. It sort of feels like to some extent they're quite different skill sets. Um, mm. the, I guess my broad question is the transition from parliamentarian to minister, how was that? But in particular, do you think, do you think that that training to become a minister is right? Uh, again, there's it's a massive step. And, and look, for some it's bigger than others. I, I became a minister after having been a Member of Parliament for three years. So, yes, again, I was the youngest woman ever to be a minister in Victoria. So it, it, was, it was quite a, a, a steep um, learning curve. Um, again, the party structure and systems do give you support and training and mentoring, and I, I should have mentioned that before. There's a, both a formal and informal mentoring environments that, that is really supportive. But it's also um, a big part of it is, again, one of the, being a Member of Parliament, you get to meet so many different people. And we've got to remember that, politicians, members of parliament, ministers, we're all ultimately, you know, we're people, and I know sometimes social media elements of social media forget that, we're people. And the, your best resource is getting out there and talking to people. And so, you know, I came to this job and I, I continue to this day in this job drawing great strength and advice and information from the community I represent. I, you know, checking my own emails. I go through my emails to check, you know, respond to people who have emailed me from my own community that's a really important resource and really keeps you connected to the issues that are important to families, local communities, which in turn helps you make better decisions because you've got a sense of what's going on out there. Mm. Yes, I always think of them as quite separate hats to wear, but, but sometimes that I can see how you need to use your community as your guide on really big policy decisions as well. Yeah, and, and if I can... You know, particularly draw on contemporary experience, the challenges that we've all had in navigating our decision-making through the, the pandemic and what's the right way to, you know, what the right decisions at the right time. And, and, mm. it, and this is when being able to hear directly from business owners and families and parents of kids at school has been really important as we work through what has been undoubtedly the most difficult and challenging period I think anyone involved in any level of governance and again it doesn't matter what organization you're in governing an organization through a through a global pandemic is probably we'll all chalk it up as the most difficult and challenging experience we've ever had in our professional careers mm. it's not going to set any of us ahead on our CVs though is it because everybody's got it true 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 you've had quite a few portfolios in your way through um 
both in the shadow ministry and in the government ministry. And, and some of those have been on previous crises, so like bushfire response, etc. I think you sort of, um, you were the shadow minister for the bushfire response in 2010 to 2013. You know, what, what's different about this crisis and what, what do you think we're learning from it as we go? Uh, well, it's, it's maybe a little bit um, obvious, but I think with natural disasters, obviously, they come and go. You are not, like with, the, with the, the, the Black Saturday fires here in Victoria back in February 2009, like they were they, devastating, absolutely devastating. The loss of life was tragic and just, you know, the thousands of homes that were destroyed and then the tens of thousands of people who were directly affected. So... Um, but I guess as with a with a fire and, and and I guess you know other natural disasters, they come through and then you can immediately turn to the rebuild. You can immediately get into recovery and rebuild. Uh, obviously, with the pandemic, we're going through constant waves of it. So you know there was lockdown one at the you know think back to where we all were February March last year, and there was lockdown one, and you know. Victoria, New South Wales came out of that pretty much, you know, we all came out of that pretty much at the same time. And then here in Victoria, mm. we went back into lockdown um, in, in, in July for that much longer period of time. And then 2000, you know, we all thought at the end of 2020, oh, that's all behind us. That's good. And then 2021 has obviously been another series of um, lockdown um, right across mostly the eastern seaboard. And so that makes that job of moving into the recovery the rebuild and recovery phase all that more difficult because in some ways you're doing the recovery whilst you're going back into into lockdown and then having to work out also how to rebuild out of it. So that's been that's been a really mm. challenging piece um, as we as we work through work through it. And we've had to really run those streams at the same time that managing the pandemic, helping people recover, whether it's um, for their own personal health, the people who've been economically badly impacted, and then looking at the rebuild, which is that broader, more community economy piece of how you rebuild a, a stronger economy and community on the other side of it. Um, can I ask about, um, so crisis cabinet and perhaps, again, the juxtaposition with your, your normal role as a, as a minister responsible for really big bits of infrastructure where you've got uh, loads of great advice. You've got data to support your decisions. They're really long-term in nature, so you don't have to make a decision on Tuesday if you don't have sufficient data versus the crisis cabinet where you've got to make a decision on Tuesday with incomplete data and, and poor options in almost, in almost every direction. Can you just... To, or, or certainly, sorry, poor options is a bad description. Options for which there are there are obvious downsides and upsides in any of the scenarios you take. Can you just talk us through that difference in decision making in that crisis cabinet where there's just you know real life and death type decisions? Well, I, I think it's interesting you do you know frame it in that life and death kind of frame because it's right. Like what we were dealing with, and that's why I think you saw very quickly and, and I, I would say Adrian too the evidence before all of the different governments federal and state um, over the way has been pretty stark you either get on it and get on it quickly or it gets out of control and that's where the, the life and death thing comes into really stark relief um, and uh, and many people get sick and as we've seen sadly so many people have died as a consequence so that's where you know whilst it I think the main difference in answer to your question the main difference is 
it's the speed at which you're being asked to make decisions because you're right. Um, with projects, you do have a longer, a, a little bit longer, but not always. Mm. <laughs> you know, they're, they're often too, and particularly, you know, one of the things I've been really focused on here in Victoria with the, the rollout I've done over the past um, was it nearly seven years is we've got such a big program and I've been really acutely focused on making sure that if we've got deadlines to hit, we hit those deadlines because you miss one tender deadline, you miss one cabinet decision date, one process date, and that completely can blow the end of your, your timeline. And when you've got so many projects on the go at once, as we do here in Victoria, you've got num numerous decision dates to, to hit along the way. And so, so I think that's that's the difference is you've just got to make those decisions in a pan in a pandemic so much more quickly. Um, but the, the fundamentals are still the same, as you said. You've got to have good evidence, good advice, and also weigh up the options it is. And as we've been really clear in Victoria, putting the health of the Victorian community first and foremost still in what we're doing. Um, it's a good opportunity to talk about the big build. Mm. Uh, nice segue into it. Yeah. Um, so obviously a huge program. Um, begun, the, the, the bulk of the decisions for which were made pre-pandemic in a strategic sense, the, the decision to make the investment, but timely from a stimulus perspective, because that's money that's sort of hitting the economy now and, and keeping people employed as construction's reopened. Uh, where are we at in the big build? What's the, uh, what's the current state of play? Well, it's continuing to go, go really strongly. You know, for, for context sake, we, we have um, a couple of weeks ago, we did have to have the industry shut down um, to do, because we did have a, quite a few issues with the, with the, the virus on both our sites and, and how we needed to manage that. But as a, as a whole, the program is going really strongly. And just to pick up on your, I guess, um, observation, Adrian, around how it's been timely, I think what we've now got here in Victoria is we've built up a pipeline of projects that now isn't, I mean, it's, it's always about, you know, it's always about first and foremost the project and what it's delivering by providing better transport connections for our community and I'll come back to that in a tip because that's all about you know a, a more equitable society is one where people can access their services more easily and more quickly and so that's a that's that's the focus of the, the, the project outcome but in terms of the way to get there what we've now got is we've built a, the program to a level that now supports tens of thousands of people and you know, we, we often talk about the 18,000 construction workers in the program that are supported, and that's that's really big and important. And being able to have that workforce sustained largely through the pandemic has meant that those families weren't as economically affected by the pandemic as other industries that had to shut down as a consequence of the, of the virus. But we also have a much broader ecosystem around our projects and just the the great men and women on the in high vis out on our construction sites. We have a massive supply chain that supports our program that is also now geared up here in Victoria to that level of activity. And whether it's your, your manufacturing, you know, there's a you know, concrete manufacturing facility in Melton that also 
was able to stay open and actually employ more people during the pandemic because they were supplying our level crossing and our major roads program. So they had a pipeline. Um, there's things like um, there's things like cleaning and catering companies that that have contracts with our program. IT engineering locations mm-hmm. and also a really big part of it too is social procurement part of the program where we have, for example, a, a nursery in the, um, in the Yarra Valley that is a disability services provider that also runs uh, employees, people in the, in the nursery part of the business. They have contracts on our, again, level crossing program to do the landscaping works with the project. So all of those parts of the ecosystem are geared around our program and were able to be sustained through the pandemic because our projects kept moving. And then looking beyond, um, as you've mentioned, we've got a, we're continuing that pipeline. We've just added, you know, another 10 level crossings to our program. We've got, you know, contracts around um, Northeast Lincoln Airport and Suburban Rail all coming through the pipeline. We've got a whole bunch of road projects going through as well. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's understanding that we've got we've got the we've got the opportunity to continue to support that really wide range of um jobs across the economy and there's always better transport infrastructure to build as well you know there's always making sure that we're building you know safer roads and and better rail connections so it's a it's been a, a really I think important part it's been a really important part of Victoria's economic story for the last seven years but it's been particularly acutely important in supporting um, so many families during uh, during the pandemic. I think that's a really interesting point because a lot of listeners would think of the COVID pandemic as being hugely disruptive to construction and to, you know, they think of shortages and they think of closures and, you know, um, but 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 there's also that upside, isn't there, that there have been less users on the network, so the ability to get things done can be slightly more productive. Um, as you say, like that social procurement aspect of projects is really interesting. Is that has that been a, a factor of necessity as well? Like because it, it is somewhat there was a bit more competition around projects to get people that, that there's almost an incentive to use people who might otherwise be um, uh, less utilised or, or particular groups like disability groups or Aboriginal businesses or, or women, etc. Like what? What sort of outcomes have been different as a result of COVID here? Well, it's actually, if I can take a step back, um, and and the, the social procurement settings that we've had mm. from the get-go of our big build program that we started um, after the, the 2014 election, and that was, was it was more, it was not, not so much about responding to school shortages, it was about equitably spreading the benefit and the opportunity of, of um, the, um, the 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 jobs and the and and the obviously family benefits that come from being involved in our program and the, you know one of the very first policies that we embarked on in this space was bringing in the the major project skills guarantee so requiring all of our projects to um, have uh, at least ten percent of the working hours to be employed by apprentices trainees and cadets and you know. Mm-hmm. With again longer memories, remember you know back in the day the state-owned enterprises that employed the apprentices and the tradies and they'd have a career for life, and then that fell away 
during particularly the, the 80s well, and 90s. And so there was the opportunity to, you know, bring back that investment in young people in skills and trades by requiring it and mandating it. And our construction partners responded tremendously well. And then at the same time, the, 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 the opportunities to, when you're putting something out to tender, to have the settings in there that allows the disability service provider, the Indigenous, um, the Indigenous contracting to be given a go. I mean, they're all judged on their merits, and I think that's a, a really important point. But what we do is we have the settings in place that require companies to go and have a look at those businesses to seek them out. And, you know, another really good example is up at Echuca, um, the Echuca Moama Bridge is a, one of my I shouldn't say I have a favourite project. All my all my projects are my favourites. This is a particularly exciting one because it's building two, two new bridges can, for the communities of Echuca Moama. There's a really strong Indigenous population there. Well, you know, um, one of the Indigenous companies up there involved in um, earth moving is on the job. We've got really high Indigenous participation across that project because we set the, we set the requirement. And this is having really positive outcomes and it goes to governments taking a leadership position and and setting the expectations and doing it early enough in the life cycle of projects so the, the tender processes and the companies can respond. As I said, we are seeing we've got, you know, great Indigenous participation on our program. We've got, um, you know, we've got we've got women, more women um, getting through and in being employed in, in the construction sector. Uh, the, I've mentioned the disability services as well. And this is all about making sure that it is, a, it is about getting more equitable outcomes from what is a really big program and seeing that with just a little bit of effort, extra effort in key places, you can really get some great opportunities for people that they wouldn't otherwise have had. Can I just uh, go back to the underpinning rationale for some of the the work that you're doing, you mentioned that kind of equitable access piece. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put up a straw person here um, for you to potentially knock down. We, um, but I know a few years ago, there was all this talk about 30 minute cities and, and having connections between people. But I think we found over, certainly I found over COVID, I live in a, a five minute city because I'm not allowed to go that far from my house. Um, and, and really, it's a thirty-step city between this desk and the fridge. But you there's a, them. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's not great for health outcomes. But anyway, um, the great big project being built. And we'll get onto suburban rail loop later. But there are those that say, well, actually, COVID has told us that we need the, the way to create a smaller uh, or the move services closer rather than moving people or, or, or sort of, I don't know what that argument is, but they've essentially said you don't need these big projects and you're responsible for the big things. Um, are those people wrong and why? Only in part. And that's because that's assuming that the big projects are all about moving people in and out of the centre, in Victoria's case, Melbourne. Um, and, you know, projects um, like the Metro Tunnel is about moving people in and out of the, of the centre. But if you look at a project like the North East Link, that's about moving people around the city um, and particularly important for the movement of freight around the city. And we'll come to the suburban railway bit in a minute. So, um, but the North East Link is, you know, I think the biggest road project ever to be invested in in the state's history. And that's not about moving people into the centre. It's about moving 
people around. And, and if you look particularly in that northeastern part of, of Melbourne, um, there's the interchanges that we're, we're building as part of the project will actually give more people more access into their local community without being stuck in traffic. And at the same time, it's taking the trucks, the huge amount of freight trucks that rumble through local streets off those local streets. So it's about, um, I think, having, again, the right projects in the right place at the right time. I know that sounds a bit, might sound a bit twee, but, you know, a, um, a, a big investment, you know, we've just, we invested, you know, with the federal government, I will acknowledge, around $600 million um, in, in improving the, the passenger rail line to Ballarat. Uh, that was operationalised early, earlier this year an extra 125 services a week coming in and out of Ballarat to Melbourne. Now, that is an example of moving people in and out of the city, but it's, and it's a big investment, but it's needed to support the movement of people. So it's about doing, I guess my point is it's about doing both, mm-hmm. understanding what those local connections are, and that's what our suburban roads program's about. That's what our level crossing removal program is about. And they're big projects just on their own, but they're local, they're in suburbs, and they're making a difference to the congestion in those local communities, whilst at the same time doing those other bigger projects, recognising that there is always going to be the need for people to move either through or around the city, depending on where they're coming from, where they're going and and what their purpose of travel is, whether it's getting to the airport, moving goods to market, where you need to have the the network that supports those different movements. Did, Did you ever have pause over the last 18 months during the pandemic with people working from home and thought, oh, actually, do do we need those big things? Like, should we mm-hmm. should we delay decisions on things to take account of what the future might look like? Of course. Well, not just during the last 18 months. It's important that you know. I feel it's always important that you you, you reflect and you analyse and you you know stress test what you're doing. That should be a normal course of your your business. But certainly the pandemic with the number of people working from home really. Um, we, we really did. We looked at the data, we drilled down and have a look. And I'll, there's a couple of things, a couple of ways to answer that. One is um, a lot of the program we're investing in here in Melbourne has come as a consequence of there not having been enough historical investment. The Metro Tunnel is a, a really good example of that. So is the North East Link. You know, these are projects that were needed before the pandemic. They'll be needed after the pandemic because of what they do in terms of the capacity to move more people and address the the congestion issues. What working from home has done is um, I think we we were also making investments and two other good examples, well, three good, what I think are three good examples. I've mentioned level crossing removals, suburban roads, and also our investment in regional rail. Those three investments have, I think, um, only become more important because of the pandemic, because they are about making improvements in local communities. And the reason why I mentioned regional rail in that is what the working from home consequence of the pandemic has achieved is something that those of us living in the regions have always known you could do if only you could get the cultural change, and that is living in regional Victoria and working um, remotely and going into the office a couple of days a week. And to do that, you need better rail connections, and that's a big part of the the regional rail program that we're we're undertaking at the moment. So is is the hope then that some of this flexibility around how people work and where they work will stick? 
Well, it's going to be, I think, Janice, it's a really interesting question because I think only really time will, will, will tell. Mm. I think if, if, if the pandemic had a, it would have been lovely, wouldn't it? The pandemic had only been three months long in, in mm. early up 2020, then maybe it wouldn't have stuck quite so much. Yeah. Because, um, and again, I can only speak for Victoria, but obviously New South Wales is coming out of a, a longer period of lockdown as well. Because people have had a longer period of time, we've gotten used to the technology. I think what we're seeing, and we're seeing this from survey work of both our own public service, but also I think some of the, the big companies um, are doing this as well when you survey, um, survey their own workforce, is people are saying, hey, I'd like to do a shandy. Like to maybe do a couple of days at home, couple of days in the office, and I think we've also seen that productivity has held up. Certainly, people miss the the, the personal interaction and the face to face contact, but they also like the the balance you get from not having the pressure of travelling every every day. So I think my feeling is that for a larger number of people, it will remain a feature of their of their working um, environment. And that will be very much determined on your own personal circumstances. And I think for particularly for people with kids, they like the flexibility of being able to duck out, get the kids from school, bring them home and keep working. Whereas for other people, you know, they'll want, they'll want to be in the office five days a week and, and, and having, having that different lifestyle. So I think, well, I think the change will come from how workplaces provide for the, the, new, the newer demands from their workforce that will come and, and talking to companies over the course of the pandemic, we're already seeing that companies who want to attract, you know, the best and brightest are understanding that this has now got to be part of the menu of things that attracts people to come and come and work for them as providing a level of workplace flexibility. Um, I don't know if I'm unique, but I'm, I miss my commute. It might, I'm like a rail, <laughs> maybe I'm a rail nerd or something, but I miss that. There's something quite nice that, that sort of 40 minutes on the train provides as a break between work and home. And also on my rail line, unlike all the great rail lines in Victoria, my one's got absolutely dreadful mobile signal. <laughs> so like it's the one time when I'm not being, you know, no one's calling and there's no kind of, uh, the, the phone's not going off. So I'm, I miss it. But it's also a useful segue to talk about rail and to talk yes. about suburban rail loop. And... Um, obviously an enormous multi-decade investment at the early stages now of um, beginning the first parts of that, but also planning the broader, the broader system. Um, maybe you could just talk us through the, and, and you're the minister for suburban rail loop, which is the link. Could you maybe just talk us through the genesis of the project, the problem it's trying to solve, et cetera. Yeah, well, and and the, the, the genesis goes back to the earlier questions about um the suite of projects and are they still needed here in Victoria? And because, again, pre-COVID, we already had a, a, a challenge with um, population growth and our, and our infrastructure needs not keeping up and not supporting that. So we had a lot of catch-up to do. And then what this, the suburban rail loop, so the suburban rail loop, and going back to your, we, we talk about 20-minute neighbourhoods here um, in terms of um, understanding that Melbourne Melbourne is um, a great city, but it doesn't have the orbital connections. And so um, through the work we've been doing on the, the suburban rail loop, we, and you look at the, the forward population forecasts, which when if you go out to the, you know, the late 2050s, um, it's predicted that the population growth will, will 
over that period of time come back and be, be quite strong. And that's certainly what the federal government's intergenerational report identified when it was released back in, back in June, that whilst we're definitely having a population dip, it is projected to come back and be quite strong. So when you put that into the Melbourne and Victorian context, we already had unmet demand for orbital travel. You know, 70% of the jobs are in the, in the suburbs and about 55% of people who go to work every single day are doing a, making an orbital journey. And in Melbourne, that's just not at the moment as a journey that is met by um, a mass transit, a rail mass transit option. So it's people doing it in their car. So that adds to congestion on the road network. Overlay the population figures and the forecasts, and Melbourne's projected to be a city the size of London by the late 2050s. And if you think about that on our existing rail network and our existing road network, you can see that the, the congestion problems that will, will come from the, the, whether it's people trying to get into crowded trains or get onto congested roads, there, there needed to be a, a, a transport response that supported the movement of people to get to where they needed to go, that made it a, an enjoyable trip that um, also didn't further entrench some of those issues of disadvantage that come with forcing people to live further away from where they work. And so they were some of the foundations of the work that we did in looking at the suburban rail loop. And um, it was seen as a, a really good solution to address a, those, those issues around orbital movement, connecting um, also to and, and doing more in those key um, suburban um, nodes, if you like, around job centres because we know, you know, Sydney's doing this, we know from cities around the world where you have good transport connections, that becomes a great employment hub as well, a great job centre. And so there was the opportunity with the suburban rail loop with the, the new underground station locations connecting up with our existing um, radial network. Basically putting a wheel in the spoke, around the spokes, has meant that we can provide for that orbital movement to where the jobs are now, but also do the precinct development around each of the stations that increases the jobs. Also, too, understanding that there was an opportunity here to support more people to live closer to those, tra that, those train stations as well, which again goes to the 20-minute neighbourhood piece. Um, you know, more jobs, more services, more houses, more community investment around train stations is really where um, um, I think cities, where people are moving to already, whether it's pandemic, whether it's other um, policy responses. And the suburban rail loop provides for that um, by investing in the transport, firstly, the transport infrastructure, but at the same time, bringing together the precinct development so that as the stations are opening up and passengers are getting on and off, they're walking into the precincts that are equally um, have been developed and supported and have those amenities rather than there being that lag that has historically come from, you know, big transport interventions and then there has usually been a bit of a lag in terms of the, the people moving there and, and, and the job opportunities. Sorry, that was, I appreciate that was, there was, that was a bit of a no, long, longer answer. Than, it's fine. No, no, the answer was fine. I was just waiting to see if Janice wanted to ask the question <laughs> rather than yeah. diving in again. Yeah, I'm happy to ask a question. I, like, you know, as, as someone who's not from Victoria, it took me a little bit to get my head around the scale of this project and, um, you know, listeners might, might not actually who are outside of Victoria might not appreciate just how big it is. Um, and, and it's quite 
I, I guess there's a really interesting kind of philosophy about the, the urban form and, and the way a project like that can change the sort of northern fringe. So, so you know, what, what does that mean in terms of in connecting those outer centres? You know, is the expectation that employment generation and employment locations will shift into those areas as well? And, and what, what, what's the time frame we would expect to see some of that economic development in those areas for? So that's a, a really... Um a really good question as to why, um, if you like, where we drew the, the line on the map, if you like, where, where the orbital part of the network connected up to because there was um, a very uh, deliberate um, decision to align the orbital rail connection through um, the more middle suburbs rather than the suburbs of the, of the city. And that's because it, if you look at, the map, which is obviously a bit hard to do when we're doing this on a podcast, but if you looked at a map of, of the of the of the suburban rail loop line, you would see that it's connecting into um, existing um, areas where there's already mm. um, already development either happening or, or or substantially underway. So Box Hill is a great example of that. There's a you know, major hospital, TAFE. There's a lot of retail and commercial development there. It's got a significant number of um, apartments already there um, and so, and there's an opportunity to, and, and, and there's a need to move people in and out of that precinct more easily that's not currently met. There's, as I said, there's a rail line that runs through it but it's going from the outer east into the city. It's not yeah. people north-south into that area. Um, the other really, the other two um, areas that we're connecting with the heavy rail, um, we're connecting to the, to the heavy rail network um, by two um, new underground stations the first time is the precinct around Monash University and the precinct around Deakin University at Burwood. Mm. So very deliberately choosing those locations, hey, because it's not serviced and there's been a long debate yeah. in Melbourne for a really long time about the lack of rail access for Monash University. But also um, particularly and both of those areas already have activity and there's opportunity for more growth in those areas. But so for people who live further out, there's shorter journeys to travel to work. And those journeys can be made on the on the rail network. And you know, if you look at Monash, you know, Monash is it's, it's tremendous to be able to put a train station in the heart of that precinct. There's obviously Monash University, there's the synchrotron, there's um it's 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 already a significant research, a university and research presence. But it's also um, a big part of Melbourne's manufacturing base can be found in this part of the city as well. So it really starts to provide for further benefits by bringing businesses together, making it easier for their workforce to get there, means improvements to productivity. It means you can, mentioning the best and brightest, you can attract the best and brightest because it's easy for people to get there. And all those benefits all start to build on each other. Which is why the the business and investment case that we released a couple of months ago demonstrates significant productivity benefits to both the Victorian and the Australian economy as a consequence of the what will be a big investment in the in the rail loop. Which gets to the the difficult part of this. So the vision's the easy bit. The hard part is delivery. Um, so for context. Um, New South Wales currently spending one in every five dollars of um, state government money is being spent on infrastructure. In Victoria, it's one in every four dollars of state government money is being spent on infrastructure, which is huge. I'm way higher. There's a historical high. Victoria is leading the nation as a proportion of 
of general government expenditure on infrastructure. Um, Queensland's got a reasonably scale scale um, infrastructure program. The feds have got a bit with inland rail and some airports and other things that, that they're doing themselves. Um, and you've got a, a suburban rail loop on top of that. Um, two questions. Does the funding capacity exist to do that? And in particular, because of those other programs, does, does the, the industry... Or does the country have the capacity to simultaneously deliver those massive programs? We we do, and 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 I'll, I'll answer that. There's a few different parts to answering that, um, Adrian. One is um, the business and investment case that we released um, on your very you know traditional cost benefit ratio methodology shows that it has a positive BCR. So in some ways, that demonstrates that it would cost us not to invest in the suburban rail loop because of, I mentioned before um, in answer to Janice's question, all the positive benefits, the productivity benefits, the job creation um, benefits that come from building the suburban rail loop, that won't be there if you don't build it. You know, it, it's saying to, it'd say to Victorians, you're going to be stuck in congestion. You know, the whole, everyone knows that congestion is a big, hand, it's a big economic constraint on your economy. So, and then also too, forcing people to, you know, um, have fewer housing choices to live further away is also and has a negative impact on your economy. So, from an economic point of view, that it brings those benefits to the um, to the to the budget because that's more jobs, it's more invest, it's more, you know, it's more um, income revenue for state and federal governments as a result of the job the jobs you will get on top of the normal growth. Mm-hmm. Um, Suburban rail it will bring additional job benefits both through the construction pipeline and also to like it's something like 24,000 jobs, construction jobs. As I mentioned before, um, you know, we have a much wider ecosystem. For every 100 jobs um, you find on a construction site, there's another something like 206 jobs in the in the in this ecosystem around it. So that's a big job um, benefit from the project itself, plus the extra jobs that will come from those agglomeration benefits around the precincts that I mentioned before. So, so that brings that brings revenue into your federal and state coffers that in turn can be invested in infrastructure, it can be invested in schools and hospitals and, and, and other things. The other point too is, um, is that when you spread it out, and the, and the first section we're working on, Suburban Railroad East, is a 26 kilometer section between Cheltenham and Box Hill, um, uh, two twin twin tunnels, six underground stations. It's it, the business case shows that it's expected to require an investment of somewhere between 30 and 34 billion dollars, 35 billion dollars. Over that, over a 14 to 15 year period, because we're expected to open in 2035, and so that's when you start to show it in that, in, in you know, it's got a very long delivery time frame it yes you know governments federal and state governments would be will be looking at investing in it we've also been very clear that there are other value capture um, um, parts of the project to come in as well to help offset some of that impact on the budget on the on state and federal budgets we also um do you want me to pause for a sec? Sorry, this my that, dog barking annoying dog. you. <laughs> I'll just go and shout. This is might be a good place to pause. One second. <laughs> okay. I'll just go and see what he. Oh, 
our Melbourne team is doing the funding and financing advisory on this. So. Your Melbourne team is okay. Yeah. Cool. That's fun. Mm. I'm definitely going to go to the hospital this afternoon. Far out, Adrian. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, you need to go. Months. yeah, I do. The, the, the more this has been going on, the more I've been going, oh, actually, that's not quite right. Something feels a bit funny. But yeah, right. I, go. Um, I don't know how I'm going to go with the dog. He's being a bit temperamental. He's in company. That's all right. Just bring him in. We'll have a, we'll have a, a dog podcast. Yeah, guest. Actually, that might be a better solution. Do it. Masses, Maximus, come. You can see he's obedient. Come. I, was, I was on a call the other day with Mike Murdoch and he's got a dog that snores really loudly while he's <laughs> on yeah. calls. It's uh, quite yeah. embarrassing for him because it's sort of like you're talking you is. All right, we'll <laughs> give it one more go. He's on the other side of the door. Um, so do you want me to pick up? I might pick up on the um, pipeline too. Yes. Can I ask yes. you a question about, about the, the pipeline? And so, Adrian, the, the part of your question about, you know, what does it do to the rest of the, the program is also about um, one of the things we've been focused on for some time now here in Victoria. And I know in our you know, separate meetings that we've had, we've talked about this. It's about having a, a range of different projects, if I can kind of categorise them quite simply as small, medium and large, delivered over a short, medium, long-term time frame. And that is, again, um, both responding to a couple of things. One is it's about responding to the investments that are needed now, you know, getting rid of that level crossing, upgrading that local road, and then having the longer-term projects that are needed to support the broader movement of people and goods. It also supports the different sections of the industry. You know, obviously your tier threes, twos, threes and fours, particularly threes and fours, you know, they, they need their own pipeline of some of those smaller, more local projects, whilst the tier ones and particularly and, and some of the tier twos want to see what the longer-term pipeline is because they're making the big investments in their workforces, in their bid teams, in, get, in gearing up their presence here in Victoria and Australia. So it meets both of those needs. And the suburban railroad, whilst it is at the high end of the large um, category of projects, it's you know would fit into that mega project type category. It it is meeting that need of that part of the the industry and the market because you know we're heading into early work starting next year. Um, heading um, as I said, it's got a, a the first stage will be built over the next um, fourteen years. Over that period of time, you know Metro Tunnel it will is starting to to to, to finish off its major construction piece. So it is about making. We've got that spread of projects across the program that supports the industry, but is also supporting what's happening in the Victorian community right now. Um, you mentioned the federal government in that, and you said, um, well, you mentioned the context of, of these projects um, increasing the size of the economy and therefore there's an ultimate fiscal tax flow that goes to um, both levels of government, but on average, about 80 cents in every tax dollar goes to the feds rather than the, the states. Um, but the bulk of the funding task for infrastructure uh, lands with the, the states. Um, 
could you just talk us through that dynamic and and how you how you go about trying to get the feds to look at a project like suburban rail loop or or many others and say actually there's a there's a benefit over time to the federal taxpayer from these things existing and therefore there needs to be a contribution I deliberately pause then because I'm going to just have to go and yell at the dog again. One, two. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the Mike Murdoch thing. So I've had meetings with him where he's, he's had to say, look, the, the snoring in the background is the dog that's at my feet. And he showed me the dog. Yeah, yeah. And he's sort of getting old. He, says he has to explain yeah. in case you think it's him or something, even though he's been talking. It's quite funny. How'd you go? Yeah, let's <laughs> down a bit. We'll give it one more crack. So, look, so it's it's a really it's a, one of the obviously opportunities. Sorry, I'll start that again because I'm trying to remember you, where you left off the the dynamic of getting the feds to fund projects. I'll start again. Look, over the seven or not quite seven years I've been in this role, um, it's probably fair to say the the dynamics of how these things get worked through with the federal government have have evolved and changed over over time, and particularly more more in the more recent period of time, the last couple of years, um, two or three years, we have seen the federal government support um, a wider range of projects here in Victoria. They're great partners with us in our suburban road program. They've I've mentioned regional rail revival program. They're they're great partners in that, and we've got big projects coming up like Airport Rail and, and Geelong Fast Rail. But, so that's there's, there's great examples of collab, the collaboration, the partnership working really well. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the things I work really hard with the federal government. And I don't want that to be interpreted as I, I have to work hard because it's hard. It's because, you know, I think quite rightly state governments should the best case forward to any funding partner for why they should invest in their projects. And so... Um, that's that's just the dynamic in the in the relationship. I think there is obviously you know there's the, always the politics of, of infrastructure, but a good project will always stand up on its own on its own merit. And um, bad projects often get caught out. And you know I think we've got good examples of that here in Victoria in more recent times as well. And so I think it's about making sure that you're putting an evidence base forward to the federal government and sharing with them why they want to invest in a project and likewise too. That's not to assume that they're absent of ideas themselves. They are. The best way you can get the best outcomes is where the um, the processes are, are a collaborative one rather than a confrontational one. So we, um, we've we recorded one of these podcasts yet to be released with, um, with Minister Fletcher. Um, we've done well with Albo in the past and, and a few others. But one of the striking things, when we spoke to Paul Fletcher, um, Federal Minister for Urban Infrastructure, he, he sort of said, well, that you, you kind of sort of look through all the stuff that's said in the media and the fights between the states. You're actually on a, on a working level, like I get on really well with Jacinta and I get on really well with another minister. And just he's sort of saying, well, that's just the politics and that'll happen and people will throw mud. But actually on a day-to-day basis, we get things done. Is that, is that to sort of, um, is that what you'd say as a federal minister sat over the top of, of states fighting with each other about who gets the biggest share of the cake or... Or is it true? Oh, look, I think, yeah, I think that's that's large. That's largely fair. I think, I mean, and, and, it, and it's interesting. I think we shouldn't have to fight so much. I think if every state got what they felt was proportionately their fair share, to you know, to use a phrase, um, there, there wouldn't be quite as much argy-bargy. 
but you know, again, they, they, whenever it doesn't matter. You know, I think we're having a discussion about health funding at the moment as well. There will always be just the way our federal state financial relations are struck in this country. There will always be that a bit of argy bargy and contest of ideas. But I think it also goes to um, it goes to relationships as well. And um, yeah, I, I would. Uh, I happily, Paul and I seem to agree with one another. I do have a good working relationship with, with Minister Fletcher. Um, he's someone, you know, when he was previously in the role, um, we worked really closely um, on landing the alignment for the airport rail link, um, which was a really big um, part of the decision in getting both state and federal governments to provide $5 billion each for that, for that project. And that was a lot of work that he and I did little bit behind the scenes to 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 land the um to land the alignment of the airport rail project and so i think it does go to those partnerships and the relationships you have in it you know when it comes to um attracting investment victoria you know you know i i think it's been proven that we have been able to work really well with um, what has been throughout our time in government a liberal national government obviously a government of a different stripe but um, whilst there might have, there were some rockier periods um, in more recent years, we've seen some good investment in those projects, and it does come from the relationships. I know that I don't think I'm telling too many tales out of school. You know, the Prime Minister and the Premier talk a lot about infrastructure investment in Victoria, and the partnership on suburban roads is a is a great example. Partnership on airport rail, Geelong Fast Rail, are great examples of where the relationships have been able to work through the merits of the project and what you're trying to achieve um, rather than the, the politics of the day. So um, if, if the quantum of money going to Victoria for infrastructure is, say, at an acceptable level, and we'll have a debate about what's acceptable and what's not, but does it matter which projects it goes to? You, oh, very gonna, much. Is, is very what, much. But why, though? Like, if, 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 they, if, if the feds give you $10 billion and it's spread across these five projects or it's this one project, you're still getting $10 billion that defrays the cost oh. for the Victorian taxpayer? No, 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 no. It's, it's very much, it very much matters. And this is where I would argue there is, I think, has to be given a preeminence to the view of the, the state in the planning because we are responsible for the planning of these projects. We are responsible. Now, I have, I have responsibility for the network planning for the transport, for, for the entire transport system. And so certainly, you, you know, you can, the federal government would share that information with them. They can assess it and peer review it and have independent bodies like Infrastructure Australia look like it. They might even ask the IPA for some advice along the way as well. Who knows? But certainly, you know, there's nothing wrong with having that stress test, stress tested. But as the, as, as the level of government and the jurisdiction that has that network planning responsibility and we have the inputs of population, we also, because it's not just transport that we're building. It's about making sure that there's um, that if we're building a new train line, that there are schools at the end of that train line, that there's hospital services at the train line, that there's a good road network. So it's not just the transport planning context that it has to be sat within. It's got to be sat within the broader what else is going on in the state and in that part of the state at that given time. And so that's why it is really important because they're precious taxpayer funds. And but, but wouldn't it be better though, Minister, if they if if the federal government said, well, our pot of money for infrastructure for the next five years is X, Victoria's proportion of that is Y, um, that, that's just generic infrastructure funding. You decide what it's spent on. 
Would, wouldn't that be a better model? Oh, well, I misunderstood it. If you're talking about giving us a bit of a, a, a I don't think the federal government might agree, Adrian, that you, you with your... I'm sure they'd vociferously disagree, but, you know. <laughs> I think they would uh, be, be most unwelcoming of that um, suggestion. But, um, oh, look, as attractive as grabbing a blank cheque would be, I, I think it's appropriate that you know, whoever your other funding partner is... Um, that they do have the opportunity to be confident that what their funds are, because these are, they're also, like, it's Victorian and Australian taxpayer funds that we're talking yeah. about in circumstances. So you've got to make sure that they're being spent on the right project, a project that stacks up. Like, for too many years here in Victoria, there's been this silly political argument about the East-West Link. You know, the business case showed that it didn't stack up. It was had a really poor BCR, something like 45 to 55 cents for every dollar invested. That's a, that's a good example of a project of a, of, a, of a bad part of the process, whereas in more recent years, that's behind us. In more recent years, as I said, we've been able to have these discussions with the federal government about the projects we do need, the, the roads that are we're building in, in growing parts of suburban Melbourne that are make, helping cut travel time for families and making safer roads. Geelong Fast Rail is a terrific example of, um, of, of, of a growing regional community that needs faster transport links because of its proximity to the centre. So I think, um, I think it's only fair that, as I said, if, if, if you're investing in the project, that you have some um, sense that it's a project that, that stacks up and here in Victoria, we only put forward projects that stack up to our federal funding partners. So you'll invite them to the sod turning for all of them? Oh, well, it's part of the agreement, of course, Adrian. But it's not about, you know, it's, it's about the outcome. It's yeah. really about the outcome. And the better outcomes are those that come from the collaborative approach. You know, that's not to sound naive. Elections come and go. Election cycles come through and they will, obviously, it's the prerogative of, any government to commit to a suite of projects. But, again, it's about making sure that they stack up, that you've done your homework and that they stack up. And I think we've got, some, we've got a suite of contemporary examples of where projects were chosen for political purposes on a less than robust process that, um, have, um, that have not been delivered. I mean, I think, you know, that the, the car parking example is a really, a really salient one for, for this part of the conversation. Mm. I was. Um, there, there's been this long thing about taking the politics out of infrastructure, which I think is both impossible and undesirable, even if you could, because this stuff's hard to do, and and you need people to, that that want to push through and deliver on these things. Well, I just wondered to what extent actually having the federal government's money attached to a particular project helps with that, um, particularly where it's a different side of, of politics in the other government it's kind of pushing through that some of that resistance that naturally exists where you can say well we're both doing this there's federal money in it our money in it does it make it in any way easier to do a particular thing because you've got that possibly in in some circumstances it does i guess arguably um the state as i said before we're responsible for network planning and, and therefore also we're responsible for the the development and the delivery of the project. So it's probably, you yeah. know, would wear, if there's any blowback on a project, we wear, would wear a disproportionate amount of the heat. But it certainly, it, certainly um, it, it doesn't hurt to have a funding partner of a different stripe. But, again, if you're confident that it's the right project, 
what, what we've discovered here in Victoria is projects big and small will always come with some level of community conversation and at times that will escalate to anxiety, angst and outright opposition. Mm-hmm. But done your homework, if you're confident that it's the right project, that it stacks up and you believe in it, then you kind of have to understand that that's a conversation you have to have. You've got to build into your project delivery the need to have a conversation with the community to help explain the project to them, why it's important, why you're investing in it and the benefits that will come. And for some people, that's a, that's a conversation you can have. For others, they will only realise the benefits when the project's built. And, you know, the example here in Victoria with um, our level crossings and the, and the construction of SkyRail in the southeastern suburbs is a good example of that where we've now, a couple of years after it's been um, finished, people who quite openly say they were outright opposed to the project done a complete reversal, think it's fabulous and can see the great benefits that come. So you just got to play the long game, I suppose, when it comes to having um, managing those issues on the projects. You can definitely see that with the tempo of infrastructure development nationally, that social licence is becoming such a major factor on the delivery of these projects. Is that is that something that the Victorian government is looking at across the Big Build program? Like what's the, what are the sort of... What are the learnings? What are the what are the what are the approaches that are being used there? One of the things we we've really um, been proud to build into our project delivery is alongside the statutory requirements to you know, like environmental effects statements and those 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 types of consultative mechanisms that are that are that are very clearly required in the statutory in your statutory delivery requirements. We've run a really strong community engagement program. We're well ahead of any statutory requirements, well ahead of any tender process. We go out there and talk to people and we talk to the communities that we're building these projects in and say, hey, this is a project we're doing, this is what we're thinking of, give us your ideas and feedback. And often that feedback has been included in the final scope that gets through, um, gets into, into delivery and um, you know, some, some good examples, pardon me, good, good examples again with our, our level crossing removal program where um, originally it was just a level crossing removal program and, you know, we, we, we're building new train stations as part of that and community, community members will say, hey, well, can we have extra bike racks? Can we have more open space? Can we have some recreation facilities? So we've been able to build those suggestions as a result of that community engagement that's done very early in the life of a project um, into, the, into the final scope that's that's delivered, that I again argue makes a much makes it a much better project because of that feedback we've had directly from people in the community, because they're the ones who are going to use the infrastructure. We want to make sure it's um, maximizing the benefit for, for them and their families. Minister, we've um we're approaching the, the, the back end of season two of this podcast now. And we've, we've asked every single guest we've had uh, one closing question, which is uh, what's their favourite sort of infrastructure and why? So what's your favourite sort of infrastructure oh, and why? What's your favourite child? I did child? say before I wasn't, I, 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 you know, I have quite a few children in this program. So, <laughs> oh, look, I'll, my, my favourite, if I can say this, very question answer is my favourite set of projects are our um, regional rail projects that um, benefit regional communities. And, again, it's very much probably reflects I'm a 
product of my upbringing. Um, we're having great train lines either into Melbourne or into your neighbouring community. It just opens yeah. up so much access for younger people wanting to go and explore the world, have more education choices, older people who need to go to Melbourne for medical appointments. The stress for country people to drive into the city is still a real thing for many people. And if they can jump on the train, it makes it so much easier to do that. And, and that's why going back to the airport project, making sure that the airport rail link went through Sunshine means that Geelong, Ballarat, Bendigo rail users can connect to the airport via the train as well. It was a very deliberate choice to put it through Sunshine because it was then became a rail link for both metropolitan Melbourne and regional Victoria. Similarly with the suburban rail loop, we're building in strong regional connections in that what is on paper very much a suburban project, a Melbourne pro metro project, but it's got those connections for regional communities as well. So improving connections for regional communities is probably a, a really, you know, big priority for me and a passion that's carried me through where we started the last 22 years of the work I've been doing. So, um, but it's specifically rail connections for those regional communities. That that's There's a difference there from just broader connectivity. It's rail. Well, well, I think rail, because rail is the most equitable of services. You don't need a car. You don't need to, you, you don't need the ability to drive. Many people don't the ability to drive many people can't afford to drive or have a second car to, to so it, it addresses the afford it addresses those important equity issues that having a good transport network road and rail but then particularly having those rail connections gets you a better equitable outcome for the for the community that we're we're working in which is a really nice arc back to all of the things we've spoken about about equity of access and um, yeah, we will obviously be advertising that the favourite of your children is rail. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll let the road people know that. Um, well, luckily, many of the road people help us build rail. I love, I do like rail as well. <laughs> there's, there's been a an, an historic underinvestment too in rail for yeah. a really, a really, and and so there's a lot of catch up to do where roads have been. Um, you know, there's been a lot of investments in roads and we're now seeing the benefit of the expertise in the road side of the program. You know, many of those companies and engineers come and work on rail as well. So it's, we get that their experience. Well, what I really like... Big question. Oh, before we close it out, I feel like now we've asked the final favourite infrastructure. Can I ask one other COVID question? Go. <laughs> Okay. Maybe we slice this back in, but in a way, this has been a really this has been a really interesting chat about COVID and and hearing the minister talk about the way in which government and the way in which the portfolios had to adjust. It's a there's a there's a time capsule kind of lesson in 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 all of this. Um, but I, you know, and we talked a lot about kind of the need for flexibility, but mostly in relation to the construction program. I guess my my slightly geeky question is, what does that also mean for the service delivery and the service contracting components of the transport system and you know Victoria has a very mature franchise model and it's coming up to a whole bunch of renewals how do you build that in into the next round of, of contracts as well this just increasing uncertainty about you know how how COVID plays out and closes out I think that's 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 a 
a really a really good question, and 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 you're right, Janice, to say that's something that we're looking at at the moment. Um, that with the with coming into that period where we have to consider the next franchise arrangements for our metropolitan train and tram network. Going back to what we were saying before, what does the work scenario look like in terms of your projected passenger numbers? Whilst um, you know, I think we will continue to see really strong population growth. What does that then translate across? You know to how that people will will that be reflected equally in the in your passenger growth possibly having said that though there has been an historic underestimation of um, increases in in passenger movements in heavy and light rail at least mm. in Victoria over the past 20 years so it's very much as we've discovered a bit of a they will come scenario where you put the infrastructure in and the response has been um, um, exceeded estimates of the passenger movement. So that is something that there's a lot of, again, careful um, data analysis, you know, understanding the, the surveys of workforces. And then we do have, we have the benefit a little bit of time to mm. how hopefully in 2022 when this awful pandemic may be behind us, at least in terms of, you know, having a, a more fully vaccinated community and economy and we can yeah. more post-COVID normal lifestyle whatever that might look like, <laughs> we will benefit from, from seeing we've got here, at least with those refranchising processes, we've got to benefit a little bit of time to build that into the, the, the process, the tender process that will go forward. Thank well, you. Uh, Minister, thank you for taking the time to, to talk to us today. What I particularly loved about your favourite infrastructure answer is that it was about the services and the people using them. Uh, often when we talk to engineers about that, they'll say they really love a tunnel or they, they really like the way roads are built or bridges or, or whatever it is. But actually, ultimately, it depends on the people that are using this infrastructure and the services it it provides. So I thought it was a, a really good choice and a really good explanation. So um, thank you for spending the time with us today and, and talking to us on Inside Infrastructure. It's great to talk. Thank you. Thanks so much. That's it for today. Please make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and leave us a rating or comment on LinkedIn. This episode was recorded and edited by Adam Stevens from TAG, PwC Australia's internal media agency. Thanks also to Linda Burgesson, Madeline Bartlett, Fabio Minetzis, Brendan Pierce, and Michael Player. Music